They claim it's a drug war, but the reality is it's 50 years of reinforcing racism. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. The war on drugs is a flimsy cover for racism. Racism, like ignorance in general, is not something that occurs in humans naturally. It has to be promoted to be effective and widespread. Among the various and truly weak arguments against including the teaching of critical race theory in our schools is the insistence that there is no systemic racism anymore. Huh. Even some white scholars try to convince us since a black man was president and that an African-American is now Secretary of Defense, there is no structural racism, the old out-of-sight, out-of-mind syndrome. And that refreshing fantasy that America's racism was a small, ugly aberration goes along with the belief that the drug war is over. After all, more and more states are legalizing cannabis, and one state, Oregon, has ended punishing addicts and is treating them instead. The effects, the effects of the 50-year war on drugs may not be as visible to many, but the, to the African-American communities, injustices remain brutal and widespread, and it continues. It started with Nixon and through presidents of both parties looking tough on drugs, locking people up for even mere possession of small amounts has not only been effective, uh, ineffective in cutting down on drug abuse, but continues to this day to cause great harm to hundreds of thousands of families of those swept up in the looking tough mass incarceration. So while the war on drugs is clearly a failure in its stated aims, reducing drug abuse, it is a remarkable success in reinforcing racism. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We have reason to believe that's been its real aim all along. Not a lot of people would openly support overt racism, but masking it in the costume of a war on drugs renders harmful racist policies widely accepted and accepted for some 50 years. So perhaps the next important step for Black Lives Matter movement might be a new focus on the racism inherent in America's drug wars. Our guest today, Alfred McCoy, provides a clear-eyed analysis of the issue in a new article on Tom Dispatch titled, America's Drug Wars, 50 Years of Reinforcing Racism. Al McCoy is the Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Nice place. He's the author of uh, most recently of In the Shadows of the American Century, The Rise and Decline of U.S. Global Power, also by Dispatch Books. And his latest book to be published in October is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. During the American War in Vietnam, McCoy uncovered drug trafficking of heroin and opium throughout Southeast Asia and two American troops stationed there by high-ranking government officials. In McCoy's 1972 book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, which the CIA tried to suppress, he stated that the CIA was knowingly involved in the trade of heroin in the Golden Triangle, so he knows a thing or two about the drug war. Al McCoy, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. 
Thanks, Bert, for having me. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, on June 17, 1971, exactly one year to the day before five burglars were caught at the break-in of the Democratic headquarters at the Watergate Hotel, President Nixon made a splashy announcement to the White House press corps. Nixon may have been many things, but one thing he was not was politically innocent or naive. That same day, you landed in Saigon, what was then the capital of South Vietnam. What was your reason for being there, and what do you think was Nixon's real intent for doing what he did that day, June seventeenth, seventy one? Well, I went to Saigon in nineteen seventy one to investigate the sources of heroin, the source of the heroin epidemic that was then sweeping through the ranks of the U.S. Army in Vietnam. And the situation in the U.S. Army was worse, actually, than even Nixon depicted it when he made his announcement of the declaring war on drugs, although he didn't quite use that language. He talked about an all-out offensive on drugs. Uh, and later it was that the war on drugs, that phrase that phrasing came along. When he declared that war on drugs, Nixon said that the first place he was going to fight the, the, the war, the first battle would be in South Vietnam, mm. whereas he said very simply, a number of young American servicemen had become addicted to, to drugs. And what I found was that the situation in Vietnam was much worse than Nixon could describe in those very sparse words. Uh, the 82nd Airborne, which was legendary for its heroism in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, were, were, they were then known as the Jumpin' Junkies of the 86, uh, 82nd Airborne. Uh, there were heroin vials, because the drug in South Vietnam was pure and it was sold in little tiny vials. The discarded vials covered the floor of barracks. And a later White House survey uh, of returning veterans found that in 1971, 34% of all American soldiers, roughly one-third of all American soldiers in the U.S. Army in Vietnam, regularly used heroin. Now, if that's correct, that meant that there would have been more heroin users, more American heroin users in the U.S. Army in Vietnam than there were in the entire continental United States. So it was a, it was a large problem in the U.S. Army. The thing I found was, which I found was a, a, what I called the politics of heroin. Uh, where did the heroin come from? Uh, before I went, friends of mine who were serving in the Marines had these rumors about, you know, trucks loaded with heroin coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from North Vietnam. It was believed generally that it, it must have been coming from the communists because mm-hmm. who else would want to damage the U.S. Army the same way? It turned out it was quite the opposite. The commander-in-chief of the Royal Laotian Army, which was a close U.S. ally, funded almost entirely by U.S. aid money, the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, uh, sorry, the Royal Laotian Army, ran the world's largest heroin lab, converting the Golden Triangle's raw opium into processed 90% pure heroin. Um, the Hmong uh, hill tribes and other hill tribes in, in northern Laos who were... Uh, fighting as militia in the CIA's secret army. Mm-hmm. Their farmers, opium is their primary cash crop. The CIA's Air America helicopters and air transports carried the opium out of the hills as a kind of service to their militia allies. Uh, in South Vietnam, the top commanders were all involved in the distribution of the drugs and profiting from it enormously. Mm-hmm. And that's why there was heroin available in every bar, every barracks, and at every fire base uh, where U.S. soldiers fought in South Vietnam. But as sordid as those politics were, 
they were nothing compared to what would become a kind of political doomsday machine uh, when that drug war came home to the United States and began impacting the situation in the United States. Now, in your introduction, Bert, you mentioned uh, the impact the drug wars had upon uh, what I call reinforcing racism. Yeah. Let's just do a quick history lesson, right? From 1619 till 1863, the United States had slavery. And then in the aftermath of that, we attempted very briefly Reconstruction, but the South imposed what was known as Jim Crow, mm-hmm. systematic racial segregation. Basically, the foundation for that was the denial of African Americans the right to vote, the systematic manipulation of the election laws to make sure that African Americans would not have political power commensurate with their numbers in the society. And that all came to an end. Jim Crow formally ended in 1965 yes. when the U.S. Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and that ended Jim Crow. Well, <laughs> six years later, just you know, just six years after that, which in the broad sweep of American history, you know, is is is, is a blink of an eye, Nixon comes up with the drug war, and the the drug war was in effect an attempt to <clears throat> by Nixon to. Uh, to raise the issue of law and order. You mm-hmm. may remember during that was Nixon's big campaign for the 1972 midterm elections, and it was a campaign that's been enshrined in the Republican Party ever since. What Nixon found very quickly, though, was the act, the federal government's role in, in law enforcement is actually very limited. It, the, the kinds of things it enforces don't really impact the laws, of the lives of most Americans. That's why the FBI back in the 1950s got their arrest and, uh, statistics up by returning stolen automobiles, because it was one of the few things a federal agency can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, law enforcement is really a state and local matter in the United States. So, But the federal government had the right to enforce drug laws, and so that's what Nixon seized upon. If he was going to have a law and order campaign and actually impact, you know, have statistical impact, it had to be a drug war. And that had the double benefit that he could skew the drug war in a way so that it differentially impacted uh, the, the hippies, the anti-war left mm-hmm. that was then smoking marijuana, and African-American communities where cocaine, particularly heroin, were, were prevalent in the inner cities. Um, and as the drug war spun out over the next 50 years, it gained an increasingly effective, from a political perspective, impact, a differential impact upon African-Americans. And it did that through two bits of legislation. Uh, do you mind some statistics, Bert? Sure. Okay, here's a, here's a statistic. From 1920 to 1970, 50 years, you know, we went through the Roaring Twenties, the Depression, World War II, the Eisenhower years, the protests of the 60s. One, one statistic in American life remained absolutely constant. America had about 100 prisoners per 100,000 population, Okay. It went up and down, but it stayed around that 100 mark. And through the 1970s, that continued. Then Ronald Reagan was elected president. And right from the start, he picked up on the idea that he could use the drug war by domesticating it, by bringing it home. Because Nixon fought the drug war mainly overseas, trying to cut the source of supply. Mm-hmm. Reagan brought it home. And um, uh, he managed to pass in 1986 uh, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And that happened uh, uh, as a result of, of, a, of an accident. A top NBA basketball recruit named Len Bias right. 
celebrated signing a contract with the Boston Celtics by taking cocaine and tragically dying in his dorm room in, uh, in, at the University of Maryland. And uh, Reagan sounded the alarm and got this act passed. Now, up to that point, Nancy Reagan, his, the first lady, had been crisscrossing the country and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, with her Just Say No campaign, but, and crack was spreading and cocaine was spreading in the United States, but still, up to 1986, about 2% of Americans believed that drugs were the country's number one problem. After Reagan passed that act and then began campaigning with that act to reinforce him, by the end of his administration, it was up to 64%, a majority of the American people believed that the country's number one problem was illicit drugs. And that was an amazing achievement. And with the passage of that act, the, 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 the ratio... Of, of, of prisoners, the population began soaring. As of 1980, it was 100 prisoners per 100,000. By the time Ronald Reagan left office, it had already jumped to 290. Then President Clinton came in, mm. and he passed the, the, um, the uh, uh, in, well, basically Clinton, after the election of Newt Gingrich and the, and the, right. the conservative Republicans in 1982, the only thing he could get passed was the Omnibus Crime Bill of 1994 called the Violent Crime Act. And that provided the construction uh, for 200 new prisons, put 100,000 police on the streets to sweep the streets for drug offenders. By the time Clinton left office, the, the, the number of, of prisoners per 100,000 population was up from 100 in 1980, 290 in 1990, all the way up to 460. And, and, you know, and once Clinton passed that law, that doomsday machine just began sweeping the streets, picking up African-Americans, throwing them in prison, so that by the year 2008, the number of prisoners per population in the United States peaked at 760 prisoners per 100,000 population. So we went from 100 to 290 under Reagan to 460 into, into a peak of 760 and it's still at 640 per 100,000, which is way more than any other place on the planet. It is, in short, mass incarceration of African Americans. By 1995, as a result of the Reagan law, uh, nearly one-third of all African American males between the ages of 20 and 29, basically in their 20s, uh, were uh, in the criminal justice system, either in prison or on parole. Now, it was literally mass incarceration of African-Americans, particularly African-American males. The Reagan law had this, uh, this unique clause in it. It established a 100 to 1 ratio of the penalties for possession of crack cocaine, which was used predominantly by African-Americans in inner cities, and cocaine powder, which were used by white, was used by white suburbanites. In other words... If you had one hundred, if you had to have a hundred times as much crack as, as, as sorry, a hundred times as much cocaine powder as crack in order to go to prison with a heavy sentence, and the penalties were draconian, you know, you know, uh, up to life imprisonment for even small uses, a small possession of small amounts of, of crack cocaine. Uh, and it, to me, you know, it, it's fascinating all the different ways that. Uh, a, a policy of racism can be packaged because people, as I think, you know, virtually anybody who who really looks at how politics work, fear is one of the greatest, most powerful 
things in politics. It motivates people a lot. And certainly Nixon had his Southern strategy, wink, wink, which was appealing to uh, to, to racism. And this thing about law and order, you know, it, it makes people afraid and people do things not really well thought out when fear is leading the way. And as, as you write, you know, back to Nixon, standing you know, on, on this one, June 17th, 1971, more than 50 years ago, standing alongside the president on that day when America's drug war officially began was John Ehrlichman, White House counsel and Nixon confidant. Now, if he's remembered at all, it's being for being convicted of Watergate-related crimes, but virtually unknown is what he said to a reporter at the time, which you revealed. It gets to the bottom of the true intent of the perpetual drug war. Tell us, please, his explanation of the politics of the drug war, please. I mean, that really nailed it. Well, since you referred to a quote, let me just read the quote. Yes, please. This is what John Ehrlichman told a reporter in the 1990s. Okay, Ehrlichman, as, I, as you said, was, was if you look at the video of the Nixon's declaration of war on drugs, the man on the, the right side of the screen is John Ehrlichman. Not identified, but there he stands. And he was a key architect of policy. So... Uh, about, about a quarter century later, he told a reporter, quote, the Nixon White House had two enemies, the anywhere left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. And then Ehrlichman concluded, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. <clears throat> so right from the start, you know, the Nixon administration was very much aware of the politics of the drugs. Um, and there was actually some, right after that, one of the first sort of laboratory tests of the genius of the drug war occurred not in the Deep South, but actually in New York State, and it was done by uh, Nelson Rockefeller, then mm -hmm. uh, governor of New York. He brought in something in the, uh, in, uh, in the mid-1970s called Rockefeller's Law yes. that contained harsh mandatory penalties of 15 years to life for petty possession of even two grams of crack cocaine. And as a result of that law, the number of uh, people who were sent to jail in New York State on drug charges, increased from only 470 people, that's 470, right, less than 500 in 1970, to by 1999, there were 8,500 a year. Oh and of those, of those, 90% were African-American or Latinx. Okay, so it was really skewed. And, and, and so in Rockefeller's experiment, which sort of, Reagan took note of, you see how they, they developed a way of, not, of declaring war against drugs across the state of New York, and then differential enforcement allowing it to tap down. Now, it had a, it had a really brilliant political effect, because think of what's going on here. You reach into democratic bailiwicks like the Bronx, like uh, Queens and Brooklyn. Um, you sweep the streets for drugs, and you pick up African Americans, you transfer them from these heavily Democratic districts, and you put them in far upstate New York, up near the Canadian border, where all the, pri where the prisons are concentrated, yeah. 
And what you create is a situation where you've got tens of thousands of African Americans from the city in this overwhelmingly white, generally lightly populated district. And then when the census comes along, those prisoners are counted as residents, but they're not allowed to vote. So you're increasing the, the weight per, per, per white Republican voter, turning that district into equivalent of what the British used to call in the 19th century a rotten borough. No. Okay? And it's, it's a stroke of political genius. And then, of course, what happened after that, at least 15 states uh, disenfranchised felons for life. Yes. Uh, so when you got out and you'd done your time and paid your so-called debt to society right. for possession of drugs, you were, you were barred from voting for life. And today, about 6% of the African-American voting population is, uh, is in fact, denied their right to vote uh, by, by either being in prison, on parole, or ex-convicts. And in Florida, we've seen it being played out. We can talk about that if you want to. Sure, so, sure. Um, yeah, well, you may recall that uh, on the eve of, of the uh, uh, 2020 elections, the Florida, uh, actually back in 2018, Florida had a plebiscite, yep. and they voted overwhelmingly to give felons the right to vote. In the state of Florida, mm -hmm. that if you had gone to prison when you got out and done your time, you were, you were barred from voting for the rest of your life, okay? And so there was this enormous plebiscite in the Florida State Constitution that overrode the legislation, uh, and that re-enfranchised, that gave felons, yeah. ex-convicts, mm -hmm. the right to vote yes. like regular American citizens. So then Ron DeSantis, mm. the governor, the Republican governor of Florida, and the Florida legislature insisted uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that all those ex-convicts had to pay all of their, their fees and fines associated with the cost of their incarceration. And until you paid all your fees and fines... Right. You wouldn't be allowed to vote. He then went to the federal court. He successfully, successfully defended that position on the eve of the 2020 election. And as a result, um, there were about 800,000 felons in Florida, ex-convicts in Florida. Only 8% of them were allowed to vote. And that was significant enough to turn Florida, of course, uh, for Donald Trump in 2020. And as long as that remains in effect, given the closeness uh of the balance between Republicans, Democrats, and Florida, as long as that remains in effect, as long as that requirement remains in effect, the Republicans have a really huge electoral advantage. Okay, so it's, in other words, it's this genius of shaving the margins in districts like states like New York, shaving the, or basically reconstituting the electorate to systematically disenfranchise the better part of a million African Americans, of, of ex-convicts, over half of them African Americans in Florida, and you can you can tilt the electorate, you know, in in this very oh, closely yeah. divided society. It is remarkable how throughout American history there have been various different covers. I mean, who would want to say publicly and say proudly, "Yeah, I'm a racist." I you know I think black people are less than white people. They don't want to say that, but. It's been very, very clever ways to get around it. I mean, after slavery was officially ended, you just arrest these black men and throw them in jail, and uh, they have to pay their debt to a, a company which really owned them. And then, you know, that's part of uh, Jim Crow as well. This, is, this strikes me, I mean, 
you know, it seems like the drug war isn't getting the attention that it used to, but it's still affecting an awful lot of people. And it's like 21st century Jim Crow. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm pleased that our guest today is Al McCoy, who uh, is titled the new article on Tom Dispatch, America's Drug Wars, 50 Years of Reinforcing Racism. And, you know, to, to keep find very, very clever ways, as you say, genius of the drug war, to to skew the electorate, to make it so that they, black people, don't have the same rights. Uh, people are comfortable with that. You know, who, who would say, yeah, I'm a racist. Are you for the drug war? Oh, of course I'm for the drug war. You know, they, very, very slick. And it, I, I wonder if they realized that back in 1971. It sounds like uh, what Ehrlichman was saying was, yeah, they did. Uh, and, you know, we, we've all pretty much heard of mass incarceration. And uh, I had not thought about how it helps Republicans in rural, low-density districts. But as you explained, uh, it, it does. Um, and the, the, the drug war became a, a lens by which to separate white from black Americans. As you write, Ron and Nancy Reagan launched a publicity campaign that made abstinence a moral virtue and indulgence a fiercely punishable vice. In what ways was that an opportunity for Republicans? What were the political benefits of that remarkable framing for Reagan and the Republicans? Well, first of all, as we've, just, as we've been discussing, it, uh, it, it allowed you to shave the margins. Okay, so the, let's say in New York State, which is historically divided between white voters upstate, as it's called, and basically uh, mixed ethnic, Hispanic, and African-American voters downstate in which is basically New York City. And it, uh, by transferring, as I said, transferring prisoners from Democratic districts in, this, in New York City to remote rural districts in upstate, uh, prisoners, when they're in prison, they are enumerated by the U.S. Census as if they're residents, and that increases, of course, the size of the district, but they're disenfranchised because they're criminals, they're, they're convicts, and that increases the weight of all the white voters upstate. But those are the numbers. But every strategy in order to work politically has got to have an icon, a story, something that drives it and makes it real for ordinary people that don't quite grasp all the numbers that you and I have been kicking around. And in the case of, of the drug war, the, it's, it's been the myth of the black male predator. Yes. All right. Okay. And, um, uh, it's important to note that this has been a bipartisan myth. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, when uh, uh, Clinton drafted that Violent Crime Act, you notice that word, Violent Crime Control Act, mm -hmm. the word violent, um, there was a, a conservative Prince University political science scientist named Don DeLulio uh, who published an article, front page, on a neoconservative journal headed mm -hmm. by Bill Crystal, uh, and um, and it was it said it was the, the the rise of the super predator, and what Delulio said in this article, and he was a professor of political science at Princeton, so he had credibility, mm -hmm. and he said that uh, uh, that America was facing the, uh, within five years the rise of thirty thousand what he called murderers, 
rapists and muggers on the streets who would, he said, place zero value on the lives of their victims whom they reflexively dehumanize as just so much worthless white trash. And he said this rising tide, the demographic tide of these merciless, dehumanized African-American young males mm-hmm. would, quote, spill over into the upscale central city, inner city, inner ring suburbs, and even the rural heartland. Okay, and this set off this kind of panic that within five years we're going to have this 30,000 young, black, powerful, strong, crazed males on mm-hmm. the streets. And uh, in an, when Bill Clinton ran for re-election in 1996, his wife Hillary Clinton gave a highly publicized televised speech in which she said um, uh, that uh, there were going to be super predators on the streets. And she said, you know, we can argue about where they came from, but we have to bring them to heel. Yes. And I got a question for you. I mean, uh, my, my article I had a pop quiz. Who does one bring to heel? A man? No. A woman? A child? Who, Bert, does one bring to heel? Maybe a dog? A somebody dog. somebody right. so less than. Yeah, so Hillary Clinton was comparing African-American males to animals and predators. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> you got to remember that what she was doing, this didn't come out of nowhere. This came actually out of Southern uh, Jim Crow era fiction yes. in which this Southern literature, literary canon created the myth of the black predator. And it was perhaps most articulated in Thomas Dixon's 1905 novel called The Klansman, yes. which was the basis for the film, the 1915 film, Birth of a Nation. And in this literary canon, the black brute is a, is a, is a merciless animal whose natural prey is white women. Mm-hmm. And that's why the climactic scene in Birth of a Nation is a black male raping a virtuous white woman and the Klan forming and mobilizing in their sheets and riding at night to lynch this African-American predator. Okay, so, so that's where that language comes from. It's, it's some of the most virulent and violent language in the Jim Crow lexicon. And the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Clinton, a liberal Democrat, was in fact trafficking in that. So it became bipartisan. And there were hundreds of articles in the media about super predators, the coming super predators. Yes. You had to do something. And that's why Clinton passed that law. Moreover, across the country, what happened was is it wasn't just you know the levels of incarceration. I mean, under Clinton's uh, Violent Crime Control Act, we built 200 new prisons. Uh, <clears throat> we expanded the prison population in the last five years of administration by nearly one-third to 1.3 million people. Uh, of those, nearly half jailed were African-American. But also what was happening is across the United States, in every state and municipality, what was happening is courts changed their policies. So young uh, minority offenders were taken out of the more protected and sensitive juvenile courts, and they were put into the adult uh, court system and into adult prisons, where they were, you know, these teenagers, young people were brutalized in that inhumane space we call prisons. Mm-hmm. I mean, it had, it had a really profound impact upon American society. And, you know, I think, I mean, I, you know, when, when somebody, when a family member goes to prison, mm. um, 
the impact it has, uh, let's say, if particularly, let's say, uh, if he's, he's a father, that means that the yeah. the mother suddenly becomes a single parent. Moreover, the prisons are are, are cash and carry these days. Uh, families have to send literally billions of dollars a year to allow the the incarcerated to buy extra food, to buy toiletries, you know, toothpaste to brush your teeth, dental floss to floss your teeth so your teeth don't fall out. Uh, these highly restrictive uh, cash phone cards so that they can make contact with their family members and maintain their community ties. In other words, it's 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 the the impact it has on a community is not just right. taking somebody and put them in prison. It's it's it destroys it, it damages it takes money and asset formation, employment opportunity away from an entire social network. It's you know at least a dozen people are, are directly affected by every prisoner. Mm. You know, so, so it damages a community, and it, it really slows the economic, political, and, and the, the economic advancement and the, the political empowerment of minority communities. It, it, it's the way that from the 1965 Voting Act, right. which gave African Americans in the Deep South the right to vote, up to the present, it's been the primary mechanism, the primary structure for, re, for in reinforcing racial discrimination. You, you remember that uh, when Derek Chauvin was on trial for the murder of George Floyd? Of course. His defense attorney tried to get to justify it on the grounds that Floyd had right. some drugs in his system. Right. Right? Yes. And you remember uh, the other high-profile murder of an African-American, Breonna Taylor mm -hmm. in Louisville. Mm -hmm. Right? Police were after her ex-boyfriend, who was actually a drug dealer, okay? And so it was a SWAT team with a battering ram that came through the door of her apartment on a no-knock warrant. You know, this militarized attacking as if, as, if, as if she were, you know, harboring a terrorist or somebody who was making a nuclear bomb. Um, it's all overblown. And it's all based on the idea of the black predator, yes. the black male predator. And that movie had a, a big effect on uh, the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson. They showed that in the White House. And if you look at, uh, there's one particular World War I poster that has the enemy as a big, dark predator, a big, dark gorilla preying on a white woman. I mean, that you know, fear works so well. And the, the facade of a drug war Oh my goodness! It's it's worked exceedingly well to create this, and and just to uh, you know exacerbate, continue racism as a unspoken but official policy of the United States government. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest is Alfred McCoy, who uh, has a new article called "America's Drug Wars: Fifty Years of Reinforcing Racism," and he uh, revealed uh, the. CIA smuggling heroin back in 1972. So he knows a few things about uh, drugs and, and the danger they cause. And now we have the danger of this drug war. And pretty much everybody's familiar with the term mass incarceration. But I think it might be productive to, to actually define it here, to, to paint a picture of what it looks like, what mass incarceration is. Sure, okay. Um, <clears throat> 
Today, uh, the United States has about 640 prisoners per 100,000 population. That's uh, about double what Russia has. Uh, it's, it's the biggest prison population in the world. Mm. Uh, thanks to the drug war, nearly half of all those in the federal prison system are in for drug offenses. Uh, as of 2019, there are 430,000 people in prison solely on drug offenses. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, the, the differential impact, because there is still uh, a, uh, a racial bias in the uh, Anti-Drug Act of 1986 that Ronald Reagan passed, it was originally a, a ratio of 100 to 1 between crack right, cocaine sure. used by inner-city African-Americans and cocaine powder used by suburbanites. Sure. It's now still 18 to 1. And, you know, if you, if you, if you read the press, people will talk, you think that there's been major reform. In 2010, Congress changed that ratio, okay? Well, that, that had an impact on about 1,500 uh, uh, prisoners, okay? And then uh, you may remember when Barack Obama was leaving office, um, uh, he had a record number of pardons, and he pardoned something like 1,700 people uh, who were in prison uh, for nonviolent uh, drug offenses. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump made a big deal out of the First Step Act, uh, and he released 3,000 prisoners. If you add that all up, that represents 1.5% of those now in prison for drug offenses. It's just the tiniest drop of mercy in what is still today a vast ocean of misery. Mm. It, is, yeah. it is mass incarceration. At peak in 1995, and, and the ratio is still high, the, uh, a group called the Sentencing Project that uh -huh. analyzes mm -hmm. statistics very carefully, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth saying again, 29% of all African-American males between the ages of 20 and 29 or in, in the prison system, either um, under arrest, in prison, or on parole. One-third of African-American, young African-American males, you know, yeah. in the criminal justice system. It, it, it doesn't show any signs of changing. I do think it's interesting that, uh, you know, so many states have, have legalized cannabis. Uh, well, but that doesn't, you know, and that's sort of, eh, the drug war is pretty much over. It is not over They. The focus remains on on black people, and there's still the politics of fear, you know. And uh, as you say, Bill Clinton, a Democrat, proved himself adept at picking up the seductive rhetoric of the drug war. And we talked about the Violent Crime Control Act of 1994, and he had clearly had, you know, he felt like he had to do this after the uh, the setback of uh, Newt Gingrich uh, is is the election in 1994, and then he also had his Personal Responsibility Work Act, the Personal Responsibility Work Act, that kind of exacerbated systemic racism in America, did it not? Tell us about that, please. Well, yeah, that was that was the Bill Clinton called that the end of welfare as Sweet. we know it. Right. And, and, and what it meant was that any individual in the United States had a maximum of five years eligibility uh, for, for welfare. What essentially welfare was, it was an aid to families with dependent children. So when you, if you had a single mom, she could, and she, her ability to work was limited by, by her child rearing uh, sure. capabilities and all, because 
poor minority and, and not many job opportunities anyway. So now in order to get it, first of all, in order to get your five years, you had to be, wor- you had to, you had to be actively seeking work. And, and at the time, uh, let's say in a city like Chicago, uh, upwards of 20% uh, unemployment in African-American neighborhoods, mm-hmm. it ranged from 20 to 40% unemployment. So in effect, this, this, this end of welfare as we know it required that African-Americans living in communities that have been stripped of their jobs by the deindustrialization of the 1980s, mm-hmm. find jobs no longer existed. Okay, And so what that meant was that basically in places like Southside Chicago, where youth unemployment, by the way, was higher than the overall 20 to 40 percent, okay, uh, uh, that meant that the only real job opportunity was on the streets. And there was a University of Chicago professor uh, that got access to the records of the gangster, a gangster disciple, sort of upper-level boss. Okay, mm. and the guy was a, a very rigorous businessman, and kept extraordinarily accurate records. And what he determined was that the mid-level bosses were making about a hundred thousand a year, but the guys on the street were making three dollars and fifteen cents an hour, mm. which was a little bit less than they would have been making minimum wage or working at McDonald's. And so, uh, and a quarter of them disappeared every year because they were arrested or shot. So why would anybody take a job in which you got a one in four chance in a year of getting killed or thrown into prison? They were taking the jobs because that's all there was left over. One of the things that Clinton did also that that most people don't recall was a year after he, he enacted and signed the Violent Crime Control Act of 1994, Uh, something called the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which is a bipartisan independent body that makes recommendations about the appropriate penalties for various crimes, okay? Mm -hmm. And they said that this 100 to 1 ratio uh, on crack cocaine versus crack powder was grossly inequitable, and it needed to be completely abolished. And Clinton rejected that, and he signed legislation reinforcing that and mandating it. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson um, uh, condemned Clinton. And Jesse Jackson was a a former Democratic presidential candidate, had supported Clinton's campaign, but he broke with Clinton over the issue. And he said, he said, you know, Clinton knows that that crack is code for black. Yes. All right. And the Congressional Black Caucus condemned uh, Clinton and the the the, the, the sentencing differential uh, as absolutely immoral. I mean, so in other words, at the time back then, 1985, Jesse Jackson, African American leaders in Congress, they saw it with absolute clarity. Yes, uh, they they knew what this was going to do. And by the time Clinton left office, five years later, as I said earlier, the total prison population in the United States was up by 28 percent. 1.3 million people were in the prisons. And nearly half of those in the prisons in 2000 were African-American. And I doubt now, that it had any real effect on drug usage in America, especially, you know, prohibition against alcohol. It was the uh, the criminals who made the money from it because it was illegal, but they wouldn't want it to be legal. And, you know, this, this keeps the... Uh, the criminal element, whatever that is, you know, the real pushers, it keeps them making a great deal of money while it keeps down 
uh, poor people, black people, uh, and others. And it reinforces, it just plays so nicely, as you say, with the, uh, with the stereotype of, uh, of a black male predator. And, you know, I wonder what... <sighs> Clinton prided himself, Bill Clinton, on being... You know, sometimes he even called himself the first black president on having, you know, an office in Harlem and being connected. I wonder what happened to the black turnout in the election of 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running. And actually, before we before you answer that, I, I, you pointed out that after Hillary Clinton's use of words, which she said, bring them to heel, in 2016, when she was running it seemed intent on losing her campaign for president. When she was speaking to a donors meeting in South Carolina, somebody asked her about that quote. Tell us about what happened there. I think that's fairly telling. Sure. It was an otherwise unknown young African-American woman who was an activist of sorts named Ashley Williams, I think her name was, and she stood up in the middle of this donors meeting. Uh, she and her group, by the way, had made a donation. It was Clinton did a lot of closed-door meetings, okay? Uh, yeah. She wasn't big on, on, on big public rallies. So this was a closed-door meeting. But because the group had paid $500 donation to Clinton's campaign, they got invited. And so uh, uh, and it's, I think significant the words that were on the placard. The woman just stood up very quietly, and she unfurled a small banner, and it had the words, Bring Them to Heal. Those words, not yes. to prepare her, bring them to heal. Mm -hmm. In other words, she spotted it. And and she said, you know, um, back in 1994, Hillary Clinton, you called African-Americans super predators, you know. And she kept repeating words like that. And finally, Hillary Clinton paid attention to her. And then as the audience, the largely white audience, was started heckling and booing this young African-American woman, uh, the Secret Service whisked the, the woman out of the room and... Uh, Hillary Clinton said, okay, now back to policy. And then uh, a Washington Post columnist uh, wrote up the incident and asked Hillary Clinton for a comment, and she issued what I call an unapologetic apology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. said that I've always fought for women and children. Back then, she said, there were violent gangs preying upon America. She said, but, you know, I wouldn't use those words today. That was it. That was it. So there was no apology for of, of reviving mm. and popularizing the most virulent uh, phrasing for the uh, out of the Jim Crow lexicon about the African American male predator. Mm -hmm. There was no apology for the mass incarceration, uh, and there was no promise of systematic reform. And as a result, in 33 states, uh, including a half a dozen critical battleground states, mm -hmm. the African-American turnout was very low. Uh, and Wisconsin, it plummeted. And uh, given the close margins in American politics, that was probably more than any single factor critical in Hillary Clinton's defeat by Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. In so many ways, she gave us Donald Trump in the White House. And as you say, back when when Bill Clinton was president, yeah, okay, they gained some short-term advantage, but, but they did long-term social and economic damage to this core Democratic constituency. And so by alienating them uh, in 2016, 
I, I, I wonder if the Democratic establishment uh, has, has learned that lesson. I don't know. I mean, you know, they, they so often imitate the right and, and try to, uh, to, to out tough on, on drugs, you know, tough on crime, uh, the Republicans that uh, they, they seem to not understand what they're doing. I want, but as you point, I mean, Ehrlichman understood what they were doing. I think Bill Clinton may have understood what he was doing. I just, I, I, I wonder if they know what they're doing by continuing this so-called war on drugs and being tough on drugs and not doing anything really about mass incarceration. I, I, I just, I wonder about that. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, first of all, yes, uh, the, the, the war on drugs is very much in place. The legislation is in the books. Yes, uh, there are people that are still in jail, oh, yeah. convicted under those laws. We we still have, you know, about uh, over four hundred thousand people in prison in the United States on drug offenses. We have a one point three million people in prison. Thirty three percent of the people in in prison these days has gone down a little bit. Uh, are are African American. African Americans constitute only 13% of the U.S. population, so it's grossly disproportionate. Mm, mm-hmm. Moreover, the people that, that went through that, instead of going to college, which would have been, by the way, cheaper than sending them to prison, <laughs> really? instead of going to college, they get out and they've got a criminal record, they have to check the box that they're a felon. Yeah. And uh, in lots of states, they're still, uh, when they're on parole, they're denied the right to vote. When, mm. In a number of states, still even now, uh, there's still a few left that that permanently disenfranchises them for life. So the the legacy of the drug war is living on. And you know, uh, and so you could say, well, you know, what could a what could a democratic administration do? do? Mm-hmm. Well, very simply, um, first of all, you could pass legislation saying that uh, that that criminal status is not a, 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 a grounds for disenfranchising anybody. In other words, when you're in jail, you should be able to vote. You know, that shouldn't infect your, your basic right to vote. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so you should be able to vote in prison, and when you get out, you should vote. Uh, so, so you, you know, once, you've, once you've done your time and gotten out that, uh, throughout the entire process, you should be able to vote. You should be able to cast your ballot. You should have ballot boxes in prisons. That's, so that's one reform. Second, um, We've had these piecemeal uh, amnesties and pardons for nonviolent drug offenders. It's very simple. President Biden could issue a blanket amnesty for all nonviolent drug offenders, right? Just across the board, wipe their convictions. They have an amnesty, so there would be no, if, if, even if there's a box to check, they could rightfully not check mm-hmm. them <clears throat> because they, you know, their, their conviction has been waived. That could be done. And then there could be, you know, a systematic review of the drug laws. Um, uh, right, you know, for example, California, a number of years ago, passed a proposition, which has been quite effective, uh, that, that for a nonviolent drug offense, a first-time nonviolent drug offense, it's mandatory treatment rather than incarceration. And as a national policy, as a national policy, if we, if we close prisons and open drug treatment programs. That would bring in, um, you know, everybody. We're in the midst of a huge opioid crisis in this country. We have a roughly, according to recent statistics, about 750,000 heroin addicts, but we have about 9 or 10 million opioid addicts, people mm, that are using mm-hmm. prescriptions and the like. Yeah. Yeah. 
and in New Hampshire, I believe that's your state, isn't it, Bert? Well, that's isn't where we're it? coming from. We're, we play on stations all across the country, but go ahead. Yeah, okay. New Hampshire, I know, has had a, a, a huge opioid crisis yes. in rural communities in New Hampshire. Yeah. It, it's, you know, uh, and of course, now because opioids are both black and white, okay, that changes the politics, mm. the racial politics of it. And so we should take this opportunity as cynical as you may want to say it is. Nonetheless, it's a political opportunity and require mm. mandate, you know, that mandatory treatment for anybody that's uh, convicted of, of drug abuse. In other words, systematic decriminalization of yeah. possession and use of, of drugs. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no reason why anybody needs to go to prison. It's the worst thing that could happen to them. Yeah, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't help at all. And Portugal has done it very successfully. Oregon, it's pretty new, but it seems to be a success there as well. You know, it's treating it as, as a crime, it, it doesn't work. It only exacerbates things terrifically treatment mandatory treatment it sounds like makes a lot of sense to me i do think it's it's interesting for ronald reagan who was one of the many people who, who pushed this along for for ron and nancy reagan it was a crusade they said it was a crusade and nowadays the the trumpists who they don't want to let reality interfere at all with their beliefs because you know facts just get in the way of their beliefs. So this thing about crusades, it's a curious choice of words in a democratic republic. I wonder about that unique power of that word, a crusade, and, and where that may stand today. Is it losing its punch, maybe? Oh, yeah, I think definitely. But, you know, in the context of the 1980s, um, first of all, that was the era in which, you know, uh, cocaine boomed in in. The northern tier of Latin America, in you know, in Colombia in particular, and the flows coming to the United States were enormous. Uh, it was also, in order to cut price, was being cooked in a way that produced crack cocaine, so it was a low-cost drug. Um, and cocaine is a highly addictive narcotic. There's oh, yes. no doubt about that. Yes. It, 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 I mean, let's not. Heroin and and cocaine are very addictive narcotics. Yes. And there are certain people that have a body chemistry, like quite a number of people have body chemistry, that if you take these drugs, you will very quickly develop a dependency. Now, mind you, that dependency can be shed as circumstances change, but you combine poverty and access to these narcotics, and you have a recipe for widespread addiction. Okay. Anyway, so that was all going on. And then <clears throat> that, that, that tragic death of Len Bias occurred in, in uh, 1986, and he was a he was a spectacular ball player. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the Final Four and all of that, he was a almost a national hero. And he had signed a multi-million-dollar contract with the, Bal uh, the, the Boston Celtics. And when he died in his dorm room, uh, that created uh, the passage of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which is also known as the Len Bias Law. And uh -huh. that, that was the culmination of Reagan's crusade. But you know, speaking of crusades, you know, now that the the drug war is you know, we're celebrating you know, Happy Birthday, America. It's the 50th anniversary of the drug war. How's it been going? Trying to take stock. And I got, for that article that you cited, I, did, I, I went over the statistics, and I came up with three numbers, three pairs of numbers that illustrate how much the drug war has failed in 50 years and the damage that's done to American society. Okay, so back in 1971, when Nixon declared war on drugs, he fought that war overseas. He was going to try and wipe out the production 
of of <clears throat> uh, of opium, which is the basis for heroin, uh, and um, and cocaine. Okay, and so uh, let's just take heroin, which at that time, back in 1970s, was the primary drug of concern. Back in 1970, the world produced 1,200 tons of illicit opium. Uh, now uh, it produces over 10,000 tons of illicit opium, so it's gone up tenfold. So that hasn't worked. Okay, back in 1980, there were 4,900 Americans in prison for for drug offenses. Today, it's about 430,000. It's ten times as many, and we still have, you know, uh, 740,000 drug users outside of the prisons and 9 million opioid users, okay? And, and uh, the, the number of heroin users in the United States has also gone up tenfold. Back in 1970, there were only 68,000 uh, heroin users in the United States. Today, it's 740,000. It's gone up more than tenfold. So by every index, you know, it's not only failed, the drug was not only failed, but it's failed spectacularly. And the cost to American society for maintaining the hundreds of prisons that we maintain and the incarceration. You know, uh, outside of, a, 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 of an intensive care unit in the hospital, okay, which, you know, which there's enormous concentration of medical personnel and very costly machines, outside of an ICU, the most expensive way in America that we can institutionalize a human being is in prison. Mm. Uh, you know, we could send somebody to a very good state university, University of Wisconsin, where I teach, mm -hmm. University of Michigan, et cetera, et cetera, for a fraction of the cost that we send people to prison in most states. It's very expensive. And since our social welfare dollar, and prisons are part of our social welfare budget, you know, is, is limited, you know, so for every person we send to prison is money we don't have to send somebody to college. But at least it, uh, it keeps people fearing the other and there's all kinds of ways to to have you know new Jim Crow and to 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 have racism in effect. And this is the most effective way that there's been in the last 50 years or so. Well, we've learned a lot here today. This is uh, we're talking to uh, Alfred McCoy, his uh, 1972 book "Politics of Heroin Southeast Asia." Uh, uh, book coming out soon is uh, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. Alfred McCoy, thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, I'd love to put you in charge of drug policy in the future. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Alfred. They treat us like high stock selling us a dream. It's to demonize the skin color kids suffer from a broken family structure. And when they capture and they taste us, laughing in our face while they distract and entertain us. It's to bend facts and disgraces from the past to present day. It's mass incarceration. Uh, lift the veil up, the system has failed us. Two million of us sitting in jail. What they selling us is lies. Where's heaven when you live in hell? You can't see it, but you feel it like it's written in braille. The Introduce the indentured servants as the workers now slaves. Basically, the same concepts were worded. Poor white folks, angry, broken, disenfranchised, invented racism to justify the apartheid as politics. Due to the pressure, Lincoln abolished it. After the Civil War, the economy dipped. Four million black slaves were freed, industry suffered. Eventually, they locked them up and made them work for nothing. Reconstruction, vagrancy laws made public. Anything you do will put you in front of these judges. Whites started working with blacks, party was populist, and they created. 
created segregation to put a stop to this intro to Jim Crow laws with a pen stroke the syndrome expanding black and brown people been broke similar to poor white folks but they divided us Ku Klux Klan is ISIS terrorizing us after World War II